The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. R. Scott Clark. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Almighty God, we come to you this morning already weary and burdened and in need of refreshment. So we ask for grace, mercy, kindness upon us this morning as we gather just to meditate simply on your glorious word. Fill our hearts with glory and give us rest and ease in your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. So we're looking this morning at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, which I've tentatively titled Suffering and Temptation. As you you may know, this epistle was written by, most likely, by the brother of our Lord, leader of the church in Jerusalem. Lots of debate about that, of course, but... I still think it's right that the traditional view is right. Um, the recipients are scattered Jews, diaspora Jews, not far from Jerusalem, but probably not in Jerusalem. And one of the amazing things about this epistle is how early it is. A lot, a lot of our New Testament is probably, well, not a lot, but I mean, uh, I think the Gospels are probably earlier than we've been told. And, and it certainly is interesting to be looking at uh, one of the very earliest uh, canonical documents somewhere around AD 44, 48, so mid, mid to late 40s, which is, which is very early. And he touches here in this section of Scripture on uh, two really important themes. Um, think of our brother Job. You could analyze the book of Job as being in two parts, and that's sort of how I think of it. There's suffering and temptation. And I, I can't help but wonder whether James was thinking about Job as he was reflecting on these themes here, writing to these Christians who are evidently, from what we know from Acts and from our other sources and, and just internally from James, uh, our, our um, brothers and sisters around Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, are suffering and therefore subject to temptation. Think, think of Job. Righteous man, you know, we, we have to take that seriously. Job was a righteous man. In other words, he wasn't doing anything wrong. First thing you think when something bad happens to someone, right? Because we're all pagans at heart. Ooh, he did something bad. Karma's a you-know-what. That's what we think, don't we? And, uh, we think that that's how the world works. Well, that isn't really how the world works. Our sovereign God is in charge of all things, and he organizes all things, and he disposes all things, and he dispenses all things for our benefit. And he doesn't explain himself. That's the other great thing that you want, one of the great things you want to take away from the book of Job. He doesn't have to explain himself. He doesn't owe us an explanation. That's the second half of Job, because all the way through the book until 38, he's basically being tempted. He's being, first of all, he's being attacked. Well, you're not really righteous. Must have done something. This wouldn't happen to you if you hadn't done something. And of course, in, in James, 
they, it's not as if they were sinless, but you can't draw a, a direct line between your sins and hard times. And we know that from the book of Job. And finally, Job's had enough of it. And he finally raises his fist and says, all right, I summons you to a trial. God shows up for the trial. I release the hearing, preliminary hearing. And, and God says, I have a question for you, Job. Before we commence this trial, I have a question for you. You have standing, basically. You have standing to indict and charge me. So I'll ask some, some follow-up questions so we can establish whether you have standing. So for all eternity, when I spoke into the nothingness that, that was, made all that is, where were you? Well, that's right. You didn't exist. Shut up. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that theme in Romans 9. Right? The problem of evil animates a good chunk of Romans 9. And in fact, Paul actually goes out of his way to intensify the problem of evil. Exodus 9 says that I raised you, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up that I might show you my glory. And Paul changes it a little bit to say, I raised Pharaoh up that I might show through him. He makes him an instrument, which is even worse from the modern perspective. God's all about violating your autonomy. In other words, God is not Immanuel Kant. Your autonomy doesn't matter anything to him. His glory matters to him, and the salvation of his elect matters to him. Everything else is secondary. And the point of Job, in a sense, and Paul's point is, Paul's point very patently is, shut up. You don't get to challenge God. You lack standing. Shall what is made say to the what you made it? When I make, does God not have a right to make from the same lump of clay a toilet vessel and a vessel for honor? He certainly does. All right, so all that is background to what I think James is up to as he tries to help Jewish Christians scattered, right? Think about what it is to be a Jewish Christian in AD 47 or 48. Who else is a Christian? Almost nobody. Whom are you following? A crucified Messiah of dubious heritage, according to the pagan, non-Christian Jews. You, you, you don't keep our Sabbath. You don't, they kept Sabbath, but they didn't keep the Jewish Sabbath. Don't keep the food laws, at least the way that we keep them. What are you doing? What happened here? He joined a cult? He joined a sect? They're alienated from friends, alienated from family, chased out of Jerusalem. And they're basically saying, wouldn't it be a, a big mistake? And to a certain degree, they've begun to turn inwardly on each other. They're suffering externally and giving into temptation internally, both personally and corporately. And James is trying to unwind all of that. So he says in, uh, in verses 12 through 15, um, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, when he is tempted with uh, evil, Lord and uh, is Lord and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the three things he says here, uh, first, he talks to us about the blessedness of trial, which is against our expectations. We never think of trial as a blessing. We typically don't. What's the whole point of being a health and wealth Pentecostal, right? A third wave Pentecostal, which a lot of that's health and wealth stuff. If it's not about equating prosperity with blessing, which is an anti-Christian view, by the way. I mean, God's free to bless you. Prosperity is a, a, can be a wonderful thing and also could be a terrible burden. I don't know very many really, really wealthy people, but I've known a few. It's actually a real weight. It's a real weight. First of all, you have way more friends than you ever thought you had. <laughs> Ask somebody who's won the lottery. Suddenly, they have a lot of relatives and friends they didn't know they had. And it turns out it's a big responsibility. And it's a threat, Scripture says, to your soul. But the health and wealth people want you to think, you know, if God really loved you, he would bless you with prosperity. Well, if you read Scripture carefully, typically, if God really loves you, he puts you in a trial. The prosperity gospel is exactly wrong. It's 180 degrees wrong. The blessedness, according to the New Testament, frequently is manifested. Our blessedness is manifested in suffering. Jesus said it. We just didn't listen to it. He stood on a mount on a plane and said, if you're suffering, you're blessed. We just sort of ignore that part. Peter says, if you're suffering for the faith, that's great. If you're suffering as a criminal, I have no sympathy for you. You're being an idiot. Stop it. Lots of people want to sell you, by the way, what Luther called, well, Luther spoke about a theologian of glory, and then we've gone on to talk about a theology of glory. There really is such a thing. Luther is a theologian of the cross, or James, I'm sorry, is a theologian of the cross, not a theologian of glory. He's a theologian of suffering, not a theologian of triumph and reconquering and prosperity and all that. He says, blessed are you, Akarios. Blessed is the man who specifically uh, perseveres with respect to trial. And he will receive the crown. Um, one of the confusions that sometimes appears in the exposition of this is that people want to tie our persevering to the crown as if our persevering was either instrumental or causal. And Calvin addressed that very nicely, uh, saying, a quotation here from his commentary on James, but they reason absurdly, who hence infer that we by fighting merit the crown, for since God has graciously appointed it for us, our fighting only renders us fit to receive it. What he's saying here is that the process of going through and persevering through a trial is the process by which God refines and sanctifies us. There are two aspects to sanctification, essentially. Mortification and vivification, the dying to sin and the making of lives. 
old man, and suffering is a, is a, is a primary way that God uses to mortify the old man. And it's through that process, not does it become either causal or instrumental, it's a difference between is and through. One of the things I hope you'll learn here at Westminster Seminary, California, is the difference between is and through, or because. It is the case that this is what happened. It's, right, that doesn't make your striving instrumental in your justification or your salvation. And it certainly doesn't make it causal as well. But it is the process. And so that's the first thing James wants these suffering Jewish Christians to know, that God is at work in them accomplishing a purpose. Second thing he wants them to know is that the source of temptation is within and not without. The source of temptation is inside you, he says in verses uh, 13 and 14. No one who is... uh, being tempted, and it's a play on words here because the word for trial and the word for temptation are organically related, but the sense has shifted. It's a play on words. And it's because I think the background is Job. Trial leads us, right? Trial is a kind of testing, and it becomes a temptation to us, an opportunity to sin, but no one who is being tempted, say, I am being tempted of God, he says. So the first thing is, this is interesting, right? In seminary, we typically want to know about the theology of the thing. But the first thing James says, right, there are always three things you have to know when you learn something. Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. You have to know the stuff, how the stuff works, and how to talk about the stuff. The first thing James says here is, right, the, the first way he limits us is... Not by explaining the theology, the first way he limits us or teaches us is by teaching us what we may or may not say. This is the rhetoric. This is Christian rhetoric. And the Christian rhetoric of evil forbids us, the ethic and the rhetoric of evil forbids us from saying that God tempts us. We may not say that. That's outside the bounds. Why? Well, fundamentally, this is a mystery. Evil is a great mystery. You're not going to solve it. I promise you. I used to have hair. When I had hair, I thought, I'm going to write a paper and I'm going to sort this all out. Now I know how foolish and stupid and arrogant that was. History, uh, evil is perhaps the great mystery of the Christian faith, how it is that God is good, sovereign over all things. And yet, and yet we may not say that I'm being tempted of God. We may not say that. That's outside the bounds. We just stop saying it. Yeah, but how does it work? Well, read the book of Job. Does God owe you an explanation? No, he does not owe you an explanation. We can't say how it works. We're not supposed to say how it works. We're not entitled to say how it works. It's one of those things where God says, I, 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 if I told you, I'd have to kill you. If I told you, really, it'd be more accurate to say, if I told you, it would kill you. You're not competent for this. You are just a creature. You're dirt that I animated. Know your place. You're going to receive a crown of life. God's going to try you along the way. 
And when you are tempted, don't say, I'm being tempted by God. God, why? Because God does not have the same relation to evil that you do. You're just assuming that God has the same relation to evil that you do. He doesn't. God doesn't have any relation to evil that we can talk about. God's sovereign over all things. Nothing happens outside of his providence. I'm not suggesting anything to the contrary. I'm just saying his relationship to evil is such that we are incapable of articulating it. And James is not trying to tell us. Neither, neither is the book of Job. Can't say, uh, I'm being tempted by God. God has a different relationship. God tempts, right? God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. Those are true things. So there's your theology of evil right now. God cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one. How does that work? I don't know. And you don't know. And God doesn't say. But he can't talk about us. But each person, when, right, when a man is tempted, this is what happens, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Whatever the problem of evil is, it's not in God, it's in you. Your heart is corrupt, your mind is corrupt, your will is corrupt, you are intent, you are enticed, you are lured, you are drug away. The imagery here is probably that of fishing. You're the one who's got the hook in the mouth. You're the one that went looking for something you shouldn't have been looking for. You're the one that looked at stuff on your phone you weren't supposed to look at. God didn't do that. You did that. You thought, oh, just a little bit. You're the one who saw something that didn't belong to you, and you decided, well, I'll just take a little bit. You're the one who decided, you know, that person shouldn't have that. I should have that. You're the one who goes after idols. You're the one who murders people in your heart. I'm the one who does all those things. God isn't the one who does those things. The hook's not in God's mouth, it's in our mouth. And the hook's in our mouth because we thought, oh, that looks good. We didn't flee temptation, we thought, oh, yeah. So then he goes, then he gives you the, what I have sometimes called the obstetrics of sin. Here I call it the process of temptation. You know, Calvin says at the beginning of the Institutes, as we all know, it's hard to know whether we should start with ourselves or with God. He says, well, we'll start with God. He was, he was here first. But he does say that. There is an order. But it's not as if self-knowledge is not important. It is really important. And most of you here are younger and you probably don't appreciate the value of self-knowledge. As you get older, you will appreciate this. You're going to keep growing. You're going to keep learning about yourself. You're going to realize you're just a child. It's extraordinary how, what, how childish I am on the inside and too often on the outside. There's a seven-year-old boy in me who needs to be mortified really, really a lot. needs to be mortified. A wicked little seven-year-old. So we have to have that self-knowledge. So he says, then, this is how it works. This is the process, and you need to know the process. really good to know your opponent's strategy. And if you're in sports, I, I played basketball, not well, but I played basketball for a, a long time and very devoutly. And when you're on defense, at least when I played, defense was important. And one of the things that you're supposed to do when you're playing especially man-to-man -man defense or person-to-person -person defense. You have to look at your, your opponent's tendencies. Does he go to the right? 
and he dribble with his left. If he can't dribble with his left, you, then you cut him off and you force him to go left. You know, you learn his tendencies. Now he's got a weak left hand, so you cut off, you cut off his right. Right hand. It's, it's essential for athletics to know your opponent's tendencies. It's essential for your spiritual well-being to know your opponent's tendencies and to know your own heart, to know your own weaknesses. Listen, he tells you exactly how this works. Then desire, when it has conceived. So it starts with desire, so it starts with the eyes. We get hooked, and it becomes desire. So he shifts metaphors here. It's conceived, what's conceived? That's a child. Right? And, what, and what does it give birth to? It gives birth to sin. So we look, we consider, we get hooked. Then we conceive. Concupiscence is the word here. Another way, at least in the Latin. Concupiscence. We're all concupiscent. We all have desires. Concupiscence is the mother of sin, and it is sin. It's the matrix of sin, and it is sin. By the way, this is really important relative to the whole side B discussion. Concupiscent, it is a concupiscent desire, and therefore a sinful desire, an intrinsically sinful desire. It's sin before anyone ever acts on it. Well, I didn't act on it. No, it's still sin. The desire itself is sin. It needs to be mortified. Not to be treasured, not to be celebrated, certainly not to hold conferences and to glorify the culture of concupiscence. Not, in, not according to James, it's to be mortified, it's to be recognized and mortified. Recognized and mortified. Why? And I'll stop with this. Why? And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the point, one of the points of Cain and Abel. He got hooked. Had a concupiscent desire, nurtured it, conceived it in his heart, and in it was born it literally, metaphorically, spiritually, and literally produced death. That's what we are. Last thing Jesus still loves you, even though that. Of those diaspora Jews who were biting and arguing and fighting, and it was so dark in their congregation, James says, I'm not even, you say you have faith, but I don't see any evidence of that. He says, you say you have faith, and I don't see any evidence. Jesus still loved them. Because he loved sinners who wrestle with concupiscent desires, who get hooked, and who conceive, and who give birth, he knew that when he came. He knew that when he carried the cross of Golgotha. He knew that when he breathed out his last. He knew it when he was raised on the third day. He knows it now. Whatever we say about Hebrews 4.15, it's not the same notion as here. 
tempted as we are in every respect, sins. He knows temptation in a way that we don't because he was never hooked. There was never a concupiscent desire in his heart. He never gave birth to sin. He persevered through trial in a way that you and I never have and never will. So when you're being tempted, you go to him. He understands. He understands better than you do. You cry out to him with him. Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus for us miserable sinners. Help us as we struggle with temptation. Help us to be uh, fearless, to be faithful, to understand the process, to understand what's happening to us, what we're doing to ourselves, what we are, and how wonderful and glorious Jesus is. Help us to flee to his arms and know that he will not turn us away. And sanctify our poor hearts in our minds, and our wills, and our affections, that we might glorify you and that we might love your people. For Jesus' sake, dismissed. Copyright 2022, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.